Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here together. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise that you'll be in our midst. And Lord, we want to understand that our message is it's powerful and it's life-changing, it's life-transforming, and it is the answer to every belief system in the world today. And Lord, if people would understand this, even if our own people would understand it, it would revolutionize our lives. And we keep looking everywhere else to try to find something else to reach all these different belief systems. But Lord, what we have and what we've always had is what is, will reach the world. And so we ask your special blessing to be with us now as we dive into this precious subject. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know, I know some of you, I don't know all of you, and I don't know if some of you know me, but it's not important that you know me, but the reason I talk about this is because I used to be an atheist. Um, I did not grow up in a Christian home. In fact, there are my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, his wife, his wife's mother, my sister, and my nephew are Seventh-day Adventists in our family, and we are all first-generation Adventists. Wow. I did not know what an Adventist was growing up. I really didn't know what a Christian was. I went to church some with my grandparents as a child, to Methodist and Church of the Nazarene, um, but not really ever understanding what Christianity really was. And, um, and so, you know, I grew up in Alabama where there's not a lot of Adventists. And so we had no idea what that was. And my uncle, who was a really harsh, hard, stone-cold person, you know, you've heard this phrase that a person can curse so much that they make a sailor blush, all right? And uh, he would make a sailor blush. And uh, did I say that right? I don't think I said it right. I said it right. Okay, all right. I just taught, and it was 100 degrees over there, so I'm, I'm still cooling down here. <laughs> But um, he, uh, he would make a sailor blush, and he was drag racing every Friday and Saturday night, hated Christianity, always used to rail against Christians. And one day he got a flyer in the mail for an Amazing Facts Prophecy Seminar. And uh, he said, well, this isn't church. And he really liked history, and he was always intrigued by prophecy and like things like Nostradamus and that kind of stuff. So he decided he would go. He went, transformed his life. My aunt, who had always been raised in the Adventist, or not Adventist, but in Christian faith, was thrilled to death that he was going to something religious. Then he came home and started telling her about the Sabbath and all these things that he was learning. She says, what is he getting himself into? He's getting into a cult. She says, I better go to try to persuade him away from it. And at the end of those meetings, they were both baptized and both came into the church. And then my cousin was baptized. Um, he was probably 19 or 20 when he was baptized. Then he left the church. And then I came into the church while he was out of the church. And I kept visiting him and appealing to him to come back. And by the Lord's grace, he did. And he became the head elder in the church. So now my cousin, he's two years older than me. He's 40. I'm 38. He became the head elder. And, um, and then his wife was baptized and his mother. And then my sister was baptized about two years ago. And now she teaches kindergarten Sabbath school. And uh, I'm so happy about that. And in fact, I just bought her some. She wants to learn even more about Revelation, so I bought her some study guides today at the ABC. But um, I'm still working. My, my parents are not Christians, uh, but I'm still praying for them. So if you were raised in a godly Christian home, 
You are blessed. Even if it wasn't perfect, you are blessed. Because I came into the church at a great disadvantage, not having any background. And, uh, but the Lord has been good to me, and I'm thankful. He's put a lot of good mentors in my life. But when I was in high school, um, I, my parents got divorced. Uh, my mom tried to commit suicide by taking a number of sleeping pills. My father found her, and she had so disrupted his life because every time he had a girlfriend, um, she would go and find her and tell her that he left his family and all this stuff, and it would make them mad because he had lied to them. And So my, my dad found my mom, and she told him she had taken 25 sleeping pills. He actually left her to die. He wanted her to die. I found her, called the ambulance, and by the grace of God, she lived. Um, but things have not been the same since. And there's a number of other things. I was, an, I was a football player, and I had an injury. And I remember sitting in the doctor's office having after having already had the scan, waiting for the doctor to come in and give me the results. And I said, God, if you're real and you care about me, this is a very foolish, selfish prayer, but this is the prayer I prayed, please don't let me have my season end here. I want to play the rest of the season. I want to play college. And right as I said that prayer, the doctor walked in and said, your knee's blown out and your season is over. And so between that and my parents divorcing, then, um, going into college, into secular college, my first taste of Adventist education was starting the master's degree at Andrews. So from elementary, middle, high school, community college, and uh, four-year state university, I was always in secular schools. And so I had a number of classes. Um, I had some literature classes, and I read some some correspondence between Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine. And Thomas Paine, whom Ellen White talks about in the book Early Writings, she actually says he'll arise in the second resurrection. And she says that he will, that Satan stood over his shoulder guiding his writing. I read a bunch of his stuff. And I became convinced that there was no God and that it was all a myth. And so that, plus I had, you know, evolution classes and et cetera led me to become an atheist, very hardcore atheist. In fact, I wasn't just atheist as in, I don't care about Christians or any of that. I was atheist as in, don't talk to me as a Christian or I'm going to just, I'm going to blow you to pieces. Like I would just eradicate. And I had all the reasons and all the thought process. And then um, my life took a turn and I was very much... Um, became depressed, and I was, became addicted to alcohol and had all kinds of problems. And the Lord, through a miraculous intervention, saved my life. And I remember that I started to study the Bible to prove it false. And because um, I had this thought in my mind, as I, was, I began to contemplate suicide, and I wanted to commit suicide in such a way that my family would feel guilty and responsible for that for the rest of their life. I mean, I went so low. When my mom went through the divorce, she had co-workers who were trying to get her to go to church with them to try to bring healing to her life. And I told my own mother, there is no God. Don't go to church with those people. It's all a lie. And that's how hard and cold I was. And, um, and so I had this thought as I was thinking about and planning my suicide, why don't you study the Bible? And I couldn't get that thought out of my mind. 
So finally, I decided I'd study the Bible to try to prove it false, and the rest is history. I realized it wasn't false, and I could say more about it, but that changed my life. So I have a very deep passion for people who think they're atheists. There's a lot of young people today. And what I find is this. I've never met anyone who says, thank you, I'm an atheist, and here's all the reasons why. Here's all the evidence. They may have reasons, but they don't have evidence. They may say, well, evolution this and blah, blah, blah. And the reality is, even if evolution was true, which I don't believe it is, but even if it was, it still doesn't prove that God doesn't exist. See? Still not evidence. So there is no way to prove that God doesn't exist, but there is ways too. So I'm very passionate about this. I've studied with a lot of atheists, baptized a lot of atheists, and um, I believe today that many of God's people get, become afraid or nervous when they encounter atheists because they think that these people have it all together. But the reality is if you ask them a series of questions, they don't have answers to those questions. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to show you how atheism came to be prophetically. The reality is this, that God was not surprised by atheism. Let's say that together. God was not surprised by atheism. In fact, He revealed it in Scripture thousands of years before it ever became a popular thing. Okay? Revelation 11, we're actually going to go through that in this, in, during this time. And so God predicted the movement of modern atheism long before it began, and He actually provides a solution and a remedy to that belief system. And you guess, can you guess what that solution is? It's the three angels' message, exactly right. And that's what we're going to see today because there's all, these, there's all these seminars and all these people coming up with all these cool new ideas and ways to reach atheists. But the truth is, if we just present our message, that is the deepest answer you can give those people. Okay? Did we pray yet? Well, let's pray again because that was just an introduction. Father in heaven... As we dive in now, we pray that your spirit would guide and lead us and direct our thoughts and our study today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. All right, so where did atheism come from? Well, in the late 1700s and 1800s, you've heard of the age of enlightenment or the age of reason. How many of you have heard of this? Right? Very popular things taught in secular high schools. And people present that as an age in which mankind kind of almost transitioned into a higher state of thought. And the reality is that the only, the, the, the major thrust of the age of reason is really the removal of God from the thought process. That's really what the attempt was. That's what the core of that belief was. In 1770, Paul Baron de Holbach was the first open modern atheist in France. And he had a number of things that he talked about and, and spoke about. But 1792 to 1794, which was during the French Revolution, which we're going to talk about today, churches were turned into temples of reason, and many churches were closed, and the Catholic Mass was forbidden, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, but we do, we do believe in freedom of religion. Karl Marx in 1844 said, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless conditions, it is the opium of the people. In other words, people who are not strong enough or, or tough enough to handle the, the challenges and the difficulties of this cruel life uh, have to have a crutch. 
That's essentially what he's saying. And religion is nothing more than a crutch. But I want to propose to you, and I want to just mention this, that um, Charles Darwin was actually studying originally to be a Presbyterian minister. How many of you knew that? And here's what Charles Darwin struggled with. He had nine children. I believe it was either four or five of his children actually died from sickness, which was common in those days for a lot of children to die, and people died at a premature age and so forth. But Charles Darwin didn't necessarily not believe in God. But what he struggled with was how God could be good in a bad world, right? And how, these, how, um, how, how God could be just in such a cruel world that we lived in. And so there was a lot of people going through this similar mindset. Deism was very popular in the late 1700s and early 1800s, and I'll talk more about that a little bit later. Many of our founding fathers were deists, but it was all a result of the French Revolution, and I'm not going to get into it now because I'm going to get into it later, but Charles Darwin didn't set out to write his theory to actually reject God. He was trying to find a solution to how God could be good in a bad world, and he basically kind of had a slight form of deism where he thought that God just kind of created the world from a very slow process and allowed things to take their course, and God did not intervene in the world, and He just kind of left the world to do its own thing. And there's a lot more we could talk about there, but I'm going to keep going, but there's some good research on that. Now, we're all familiar with 1798, correct? and the event that took place there. And I'm just going to do a real super fast review for you, uh, a prophetic review. Daniel chapter 7, four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And what were those beasts representing? The different nations, right? Babylon, Greece, Medo-Persia, Rome. There were the ten horns that represented the modern European nations of today. Then following that, you have the little horn that rises up, and it's different from all the others, right? Coming up among them before whom three of the first ten were plucked out by the roots, and the horns were the eyes like the eyes of a man, mouth speaking pompous words. And of course, that is the what? The papacy of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, again, the Roman Church took power in 538, and in 1798, their rule ended, which to me, this was one of the, I think, the greatest prophecies in Scripture. Because when you look at this, you know, Daniel wrote this, about a thousand years before this time that they took power, 538, and John wrote it about 400 years or so, roughly, before that, and yet they were on the money. 1,260 years is not a common number. It's not like 2,000, 5,000, 10,000. It's a very odd, unique number. And yet, when you trace this, when something actually, when, from the time this started, and when it ended in 1799, and you see the event happening in that very year, there were people before 1798 who were predicting the fall of the papacy based upon that prophecy. It's mind-blowing. And as an atheist, I saw this, and it just tore apart my belief system that the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales. I said there was no way on this earth that that could happen by chance when there was a book that was written thousands of years beforehand that, that basically said, this is exactly what's going to happen. Here's what's going to start, when it's going to start. Here's when it's going to end. And this is the event that's going to take place. There is no way in the world that that is a coincidence. If it is, it's the most bizarre, 
mind-blowing coincidences that humanity has ever seen. And so this was one of the prophecies that locked in my, my, uh, my understanding and belief that the Bible was true. And when I share this prophecy with atheists, their mouths open. And they say, I never knew this wow. about the Bible. So the Bible says in Daniel 8 about this power, of course, it says he cast truth down to the what? Down to the ground. He did all of this and... Prospered. So he cast truth to the ground, Daniel 8.12, speaking of the papacy. And we're just going to list here some of the false teachings of the papacy that are still evident, obviously, in Christianity today. But here are several. Salvation by grace and works, confession of sins to a priest, image worship and praying to dead saints, the state of man and death, or purgatory, false doctrine of immortality of the soul, eternally burning hell, Christ coming as a seeker, the Ten Commandments are important, and forced Sunday worship. Now, a question for you, what do all of these doctrines or belief systems or teachings have in common? There's one common thread that goes through every one of them, binding them together. Very different doctrines, but one common theme going through them. What is it? Can you figure it out? Okay, I'm hearing different things. Okay. Substitution of the truth, deception, but all of these have to do with one's perception of the character of God. Yes or no? Are you with me? So as the papacy during the Dark Ages was changing doctrinal truth, they weren't just changing what the Bible said. They were also changing the way people perceived, understood, and viewed God and His character and who He was as a person. Does that make sense? And as they did that, naturally, the, the nature of how people viewed God became less divine and more human. In other words, you know, the Bible says that when we deviate from the truth, the perception of God becomes replaced with... Uh, the tainted traditions of men, right? And we begin to view God as we view ourselves, selfish and cruel and etc., right? And so this is what was happening. Now, naturally, God's truth was lost during the Dark Ages, and something happened in the late 1700s, the French Revolution. What was the basis of the French Revolution? It was an open rejection and rebellion of the Bible and of God, right? So have you ever wondered to yourself, why is it that the French Revolution took place? The, the, the movement of modern atheism. It's because apostate Christianity, people had had enough of it. Does it make sense? And so the reality is this, don't miss this point, that it was apostate Christianity that actually gave birth to modern atheism. That's what caused it. Because people said, if God is like this, like this meaning how the medieval church was presenting God, all these different things that were not just error, but they were heinous. I mean, they were just evil. If God is like this, we want nothing to do with Him. And there was an open rejection of God because of that. So the truth was lost. God was misrepresented. There was a wrong concept of the character of God that was formed in the hearts and minds of the people. And as a result, they rejected God 
and embraced what? Human reason. You find a pattern all the way through Scripture and in every culture, every time a culture or a people reject God, reject the Bible, reject truth, they embrace their own line of thinking and human reason, which is really who's reasoning and who's thinking. It's really Satan's thinking. They think they're liberating themselves, but rally they're coming to slavery. So again, I, I'm not repeating this because I don't know that I said it. I'm repeating it because I want to instill it in your minds. The character of God during the Dark Ages was grossly misrepresented through the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, what happened as a result? Here's from the Great Controversy, pages 281 and 282. The only God they knew was the God of Rome. Her teaching was their only religion. They regarded her greed and cruelty as the legitimate fruit of the Bible, and they would have none of it. So rather than actually reading the Bible for themselves, which they didn't have until late, they just rejected the whole thing. They threw away the baby with the bathwater. Okay? Now watch this. This is everything I just told you. Rome had misrepresented the character of God and perverted His requirements... And now men rejected both the Bible and its author. She had required a blind faith in her dogmas under the pretended sanction of the Scriptures. Rome had ground down the people under her iron heel, and now the masses, degraded and brutalized in their recoil from her tyranny, cast off all restraint. So they said, we want nothing to do with this religion anymore because it, has basic, it had basically abused them. It had stolen all their money, yeah. it abused them, it wore on their emotions, it just ground them down, as she says is the best phrase to use. So they just decided, we're done, we're done. And the French Revolution was a product of that buildup of more than a thousand years of false Christianity. Enraged at the glittering cheat to which they had so long paid homage, they rejected truth and falsehood together and mistaking license for liberty, the slaves of vice exalted in their imagined freedom. So here's what they thought. They, this, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because this is exactly what Satan did in heaven. He said, if you will just overthrow God's authority, His truth, and His government, you will find exalted, liberating freedom. Is that true? And that's exactly what happened. He used his own lies in heaven, and he used uh, in heaven, and he used corrupt Christianity on earth to accomplish the same purpose. Are you with me so far? Makes sense. Now we're laying all this as a foundation to get somewhere. So what happened as a result? It led to that rejection of God to the age of enlightenment and reason during the French Revolution, which led to the birth of modern atheism. So once again, God was not surprised by this, and we'll see this from the Bible here soon. Now watch this. This is so interesting. Do you remember, of course, in 1798, how was the papacy brought to that deadly wound? What happened? Berthier, Berthier which was Napoleon's general, marched into Rome and arrested the Pope, correct? But watch this. This is very interesting. A letter that was written to Napoleon by the French president. Okay, watch this. He says, the Roman, so this is a letter to Napoleon. The Roman religion will always be the bitter enemy of the Republic. It must be struck in France. It must be struck in Rome. 
That is to destroy, if possible, the center of the unity of the Roman church. And notice what he says here. It is for you who unite in your person the most distinguished qualities of the general to realize this aim. So the French president said, Rome must be brought down and it's up to you to do it. Now listen to this, friends, and don't miss this point. Even when people attempt to defy and destroy the cause and the will of God, they find themselves fulfilling His will. Does that make sense? So they thought that they could destroy Christianity when in fact they were fulfilling one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible that gave evidence of His validity. So, you know, I tell young people this. I say, look, you're going to leave the, if you leave the church, you're going to think you're going to go out and do your own thing, but in reality, you're just proving what the Bible says. And the same thing here. The most ardent attempt to, dis, to rid themselves of God actually fulfilled a major prophecy there. Mind-blowing. So go with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, and we're going to look at this prophecy that actually reveals modern atheism. Revelation 11, verse 2 through 8. I'm just going to start in verse 3, actually. Well, we'll read verse 2, I'm sorry. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So what time period is this describing? 1,260 days, right? Verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And that's talking about the Holy Spirit, right? And Holy Spirit falling. And they have power to over, over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So this, is, this time period, of course, is the Dark Ages. And the two witnesses is the power of God's Word on earth through the church in the wilderness, right? And I mean, most of us understand that. It says, um, so that verse 3 and on are talking about that time period and God's Word being the two witnesses, the two olive trees that stand before, um, the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. That's the Old and New what? Testaments. Testaments. Most of us know that. And so it says here, when they finish their testimony, verse 7, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and what? Kill them. So the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, is that the Roman papacy, yes or no? No. Is it the United States? No, because the, um, the papacy at the time of 1798 is not rising up, it's doing what? It's going down. The United States is not rising up to attack the Word of God, but it rises as a lamb, right? And it doesn't arise from the bottomless pit, it arises out of the earth. So this has to be a different nation that would rise up and attack the Word of God sometime around 1798 when they finish their prophecy, when the Word of God is doing that. So it cannot be either one of those. So verse 7, again, when they finish their testimony, they will overcome them 
and kill them. Here's what happened. November 24, now mark down this date, very important. November 24, 1793, the French assembly passed a law that abolished Christianity as the national religion and cast aside the Bible as the Word of God. And so this was the beginning of this rejection during the French Revolution. So as an entire nation, it would be, the equivalent would be our U.S. Congress meeting, House of Representatives and the Senate meeting together and passing a law saying there is no God, there is no, the Bible is outlawed, and there can be no religion in this nation. That's essentially what they did. As a nation, they voted to reject God openly. Make sense? Okay. Again, don't forget, mark that date down, November 24, 1793, because we're going to come back to that, okay? All right. Um, here's a, from uh, Christianity and the French Revolution, page 109. It says, On the request of Chalmette, it was decreed that all churches and chapels of every religion and sect which exist in Paris shall be closed forthwith, and anyone who asks for their reopening should be arrested as a suspicious Person. Now imagine if the law was passed that every Adventist church was to be closed. And if you said anything about it, you'd be arrested as a suspicious person. How many of us would be in jail that night? I hope all of us. But I fear not many of us. Would we fall into fear with the masses? Or would we stand up? It depends on what your relationship with God is today, doesn't it? Yeah. Depending on how much you value the living Christ that you serve and how much you value His truth. Is that right? It's not how strong you are. It's not how brave you are. But it's how fully Christ lives in your hearts. That's what's going to matter. And so this is what happened, 1793. Now, in, there's a magazine, Blackwood's Magazine, November 1870, that describes the events that were happening. Notice this. It says, France is the only entity in the modern history of the world that as a nation lifted her hand in open rebellion against the author of the universe. Isn't that interesting? Plenty of blasphemers, infidels there have been and still continue to be in England, Germany, Spain, and elsewhere, but France stands apart in the world's history as the single state or nation which by the decree of her legislative assembly pronounced that there was no God, and of which the entire population of the capital and a vast majority elsewhere, women as well as men, danced and sang with joy in accepting the announcement. Now I want you to look at your Bibles. Again, Revelation 11. And it says there in verse 7, that that beast would ascend and would make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now look down in verse 10. That happened, what, what, when did that happen again? November 24, 1793. And look at verse 10. It says, And those who dwell on the earth will what? Rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And look what happened here as a fulfillment of that. It's almost the same wording as what's in the Bible, yes? Now, why did the two witnesses torment those who dwell upon the earth? What was it doing? 
It was bringing conviction to their sins, wasn't it? And they didn't like that, and so they basically rose up and did away with them. Is it possible for us in the Adventist church to do away, to do the same thing, to do away with the conviction of the two witnesses? What do you think? That's very possible, isn't it? Now watch this. Great Controversy, page 265. The nation was left to reap the results of the course which she had chosen. The restraint of God's Spirit was what? <clears throat> so what does that mean when it says the restraint? What was, what was the Spirit of God restraining? Our freedom? No. Or what? Evil. Evil. It was restraining the most wicked passion and vileness of the human heart, correct? Even in the most wicked person on earth who rejects God, God still, until the Spirit of God is fully withdrawn, will restrain them from the greatest wickedness that they can do. Isn't that interesting? But when the people voted to fully reject God, He pulled back His hand of restraint and allowed the fullness Satan to have full reign over the human heart and the most unimaginable events took place. The reign of terror and all these other things where people's heads were rolling left and white. I mean, people by the tens of thousands were lined up at the chopping block and the most gruesome massacres, some of the most gruesome massacres of history took place during that time, right? So he was restrained. The hand of restraint was pulled away Evil was permitted to come to maturity, and all the world saw the fruit of willful rejection of the light. Isn't that interesting? So everybody saw the French, don't miss this, the French Revolution was a mini snapshot of what will take place when probation closes and the Spirit of God is withdrawn. It was a mini snapshot. Some of the most vile things that took place took place during that time, and it will be repeated again. And God was giving a glimpse of what happens when He pulls back him, His Spirit. Revelation 11, verse 8 says, And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, also where our Lord was crucified. So I thought about this, and I said, What's the connection between Sodom and Egypt? Well, in Exodus 5, 2, says this, Pharaoh of Egypt rejected God when he said, who is Jehovah that I should listen to him and let Israel go? And notice these next four words. Five words. One, two, three. Four words. I don't know who. Jehovah. And I will not let Israel go. He was basically making his claim of what? Atheism, right? Now here's from Great Controversy, page 269. She says, Of all nations presented in Bible history, Egypt most boldly denied the existence of the living God and resisted His commands. No monarch ever ventured upon more open and high-handed rebellion against the authority of heaven than did the king of Egypt. And then she says this, This is what? Atheism. And the nation represented by Egypt would give a voice to a similar denial of the claims of the living God and would manifest a like spirit of unbelief and defiance. Now notice this sentence. This prophecy has received a most exact and striking fulfillment in the history of who? France. So in the ancient world, the nation that most openly rebelled against God and had ancient atheism was who? Egypt. In the modern world was who? 
was France. Make sense? And she's making the parallel here. Now, verse 9 and 10 says this. Revelation 11. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another. I mentioned that. So here's some of the things that were happening during the French Revolution. The Bibles were gathered in piles and burned. Those that had been transcribed in the short time, been printed. Worship of God prohibited. Marriage unions were dissolved. In other words, anything that could be remotely tied to religion or Christianity was eradicated or attempted to eradicate. They even took, went, so in other words, everybody was free. I mean, if you were married, that union was dissolved and you were free to have whatever relations with anyone. You could take you know, my wife and I could take your wife, men with men, women with women, whatever. They were doing all kinds of wickedness, which the Bible describes, and that's why it says it's like spiritually Sodom, because unbridled passions were happening. Okay? Then they did something very interesting. They took the seven-day weekly cycle because when you look at the way that we measure time, how do we measure a year? During 65 days, you know, the sun goes, or I'm sorry, the earth goes completely around the sun. How do you measure a month? So the lunar cycle, right? The lunar cycle, 30 days, the lunar cycle. How do you measure a, um, a day? The earth spinning upon its axis, right? 360 degrees makes a day. But where do you find the week? There's no astrological process or cycle that describes the week. The only place you find the week is in the story of creation. Six days and then the seventh day, right? So somebody recognized that, and they said, you know what, we need to get rid of this too. So they made a 10-day week, and they decided to redo their calendar. They make a 10-day week, and guess what started happening? Everything started falling apart. Animals started getting sick. They started having all kinds of problems. The whole biorhythm of humanity and Earth was just kind of thrown off. Not Earth, but France. And things just started going haywire, and they couldn't understand why. Now watch this. This is interesting. From Allison, Volume 1, Chapter 10. They attempted to replace the God of the Bible with the God of reason, right? So they had this thing they called the goddess of reason. So when it says the goddess, that's what it's referring to. What they did is they got a prostitute and they dressed her up like a goddess and they did this thing with her, which we're about to read. It says, The goddess, after being embraced by the president was mounted on a magnificent car, which was just a big cart that they pulled with horses in those days, and conducted amid an immense crowd to the cathedral Notre Dame to take the place of deity. There she was elevated on the high altar and received the adoration of all present. So don't miss this. This is the heart of humanity. When God, when they attempted to rid themselves of God, what did they do? They immediately began worshiping something else. The very thing that they attempted to be free from, they found themselves enslaved to a false version of it. You with me? 
Now notice all the worshipful words here. Look at this. Embracing goddess, um, deity, elevated on the altar, receiving adoration. So they were essentially worshiping a god of their own hands. And this was the greatest attempt of humanity in history to say, we are above this religion business. We are above this worshiping thing. We have the age of reason where men actually think. And when we think, we realize that we don't need a God. And so in the greatest attempt in the history of humanity to do away with God, immediately they embrace another false God. It's just history repeating itself again. Doesn't that make sense? And so their greatest attempt to escape, they found themselves enslaved to a false version of it. Mind-blowing. Um, statement from uh, Sir, Archibald, Sir Archibald Allison, a similar, same writer, different book. He said, God, if you exist, avenge your injured name. I bid you defiance. You remain silent. You dare not launch your thunders. Who after this will believe in your existence? Ellen White writes about this in the Great Controversy, and she says, It was popery that had begun the work which atheism was completing. The policy of Rome had wrought out those conditions, social, political, and religious, that were hurrying France to ruin. Now, I don't want you to miss this, friends. That statement by Sir Archibald Allison, God, I bid you defiance. I dare you to respond. Did God respond? Or was God silent? What do you think? Oh, my friends, he was anything but silent. And the heat of all that thing, God says, the very thing that drove you to this, I also disagree with. So, so think about this for just a minute, and don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. God, in a sense, was more on the side of those who rejected Him because of false religion than He was those who were in the false religion bringing the rejection because of an abuse of religion. Does that make sense? Because God was essentially saying to those rejecting, I also reject this apostate religion. And in 1798, God gave, in the midst of the French Revolution, one of the greatest evidences of His existence that He ever possibly could by fulfilling that prophecy. Does that make sense? And so they were saying, God, where are you? Where is your existence? And he said, here, I'm I'm, going to show you my existence. If you study this prophecy, you'll understand it. And you'll understand that I will use those who reject me to fulfill my will. That's a powerful thought. So the devil was trying to distract people's minds from the truth of Bible prophecy during the Age of Enlightenment right when major end-time prophecy was being revealed to the world. Powerful, huh? Amen. God is good, and the Bible is incredible. Now, their bodies will lie in the street, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified again. Pharaoh said, I don't know Jehovah, and I will not let Israel go. So I want you to notice this. It makes all these references to Egypt and Sodom, etc., so I went back and I traced this journey of, of the children of Israel in Egypt. 
And when Israel went into Egypt, they were there for several hundred years, they lost the truth that God had for them, didn't they? I mean, they just totally lost it. And when they lost it, they saw all these gross representations of the false Egyptian gods, correct? And they began to develop a wrong concept of God's character, and thus, ultimately, they rejected God and embraced the, the Egyptian religion, correct? Same thing happened in the French Revolution. These people thought that they were so clever, so intelligent, so beyond all this primitive religious stuff, but you know what? They were just repeating exactly what had happened previously. The truth was lost during the Dark Ages. God was misrepresented through the Catholic Church. A wrong concept of His character was formed through false doctrines. And rejection of God took place and the embracing of human reason. The exact same pattern repeated again by people who thought they were so far beyond that. That mind-blowing. But watch this in verse 11. Now after three and a half years, or three and a half days... The breath of life from God entered them, entered who? The two witnesses, the Old New Testament, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Now let me just make something clear here. Even though it says the two witnesses were dead during the three and a half years, or the 1260 years, right? Or I'm sorry, they were giving a witness during that time. The Word of God was dead in the established church, but it was not dead in the wilderness church. Amen? It was being discovered more and more fully. But watch this. Remember, what was the date? Give it to me again. November 24, 1793. And the Bible says three and a half days later, they would raise again, right? So they were killed three and a half days. One day in Bible prophecy was one literal year. In the spring, April of 1797, the voted decree by France that had been voted to abolish God, the concept of God, abolish the Bible, was actually reversed as a nation as men saw the terrible effects that a rejection of God had created. Isn't that interesting? So the same people that rejected Him said, you know what? Our nation can't really exist without Him. And they reversed that decree how long was that from November 1793 to April 1797? That is three and a half years. And so this event, those two events, are of exact fulfillment of Revelation chapter 11. What do you say? Amen. Amen? Is the Bible specific, yes or no? Is it modern relevant for, or is it relevant for our modern times? It's very relevant for our modern times. Ellen White says in Great Controversy, men recognize the necessity of faith in God and His Word as the foundation of virtue and morality. So after the terrible effects of the French Revolution, the Great Awakening began to take place in the 1800s. Okay? And so notice it says, they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. So in 1804, the British Bible Society was formed. In 1816, the American Bible Society. And then shortly after, great amount of foreign missions began to be launched by all denominations and later on uh, our own denomination. So again, the truth was lost, but then it would begin to be what? It would begin to be restored. How I many can say amen? amen? So how did that take place? Well, as that great awakening happened, you all know the story, in the late, 18, late 17 and early 1800s, people began to study their Bibles. And what exactly, specifically, were they studying? 
They were studying Daniel and Revelation. And people of all the denominations were coming together to study. And of course, that began ultimately the Millerite movement, correct? Now, remember, all these false teachings that led people to reject God, what do they all have in common? The character of God, right? And it led to a false image. Well, let me help you understand this, that when the Dark Ages led people through that false doctrine to reject God in the French Revolution, then God gave evidence of His existence. God then answered the argument of those false doctrines with guess what message? The three angels' messages. So every argument or every argument that was made by those who weren't believing in God during the Dark Ages was answered by God through the Advent movement and the three angels' messages. Are you with me? So look at this. I put number one up there. I've never fixed that. I always, for, I always remember to do it, then I forget. There we go. Number one. Authority of the church and Pope supreme. The Adventist message says the authority of the Scripture is supreme. These are just basic things. Salvation by grace and works. The everlasting gospel. Salvation by grace. Confession of sins to a priest. Christ's priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. The image, of, uh, image worship. Faith in Christ alone. Praying to dead saints. The hope and the resurrection of the second coming. State of man and death through purgatory, Adventist message, the state of man and death through sleeping in Christ. Immortality of the soul, God will make an end to the evil of sin, eternally burning hell, the beauty of God's love and character through hellfire, the secret rapture, the glorious second coming, uh, the Ten Commandments are important. The Adventist message declares that the Ten Commandments reveal God's character and ideal for my life in the last days. And Sunday worship giving honor to the church who instituted it versus the Sabbath, which enhances and revitalizes my relationship with Christ each week, reminding me of His creative and redemptive power in my life. So, all these things were declared through the Adventist message. Oop, let me back up there. So here's the basic point, that the timing and rise of the Seventh-day Adventist church movement was and is God's answer to the movement of modern atheism. Does that make sense? So every argument that people made in the rejection of God because of His character, due to the apostasy of the Roman church, God answered through the Adventist movement and message. And He said, here's the answer to the problems of my character. Here's the answer to these false doctrines that has led you to have a misunderstanding of my character. Are you with me? And so God was responding to those people who had rejected Him and giving them a truth. Now, remember what I talked about deism earlier. How many of you remember that? This is fascinating because, again, many people in the late 1700s and early to mid-1800s were deists. How many of you know what deist is? How many of you don't know what it is? Deism simply means this, basically, that we don't necessarily, not as similar somewhat to agnosticism, little, it's a little step better than agnosticism, but that God, I believe in a God, I believe He's there, but He's super impersonal. He does not intervene in the world. He basically created the world, wound it up like a clock and said, let it go, let it run its course, and whatever happens, happens. And this is the result of all that's happened, okay? 
I met a man about a month ago who was a deist. Yeah. I, you don't meet very many of them anymore. But many of our founding fathers were deists. Why? The secular world today will tell you it's because they did not believe in God, but that's not true. Here's what they were wrestling with. They, they, had not, they would not go as far as to say, like the French people in the French Revolution, we totally reject God. But they, they were thinking people. They were very intelligent people. And they thought to themselves, we don't reject God, but we don't understand how He can be good when there's so much wickedness and evil in the world. There has to be a reason that we just can't put our finger on. Are you with me so far? And so they formed this idea of deism. Well, maybe this is why God did this. But there was this period of about 40 to 50 years where it was super popular. But guess what also came to answer the question of deism through the Advent movement? The understanding of a certain theme that we know quite well, which is what? The great controversy. The great controversy answered the question of deism. It answered the question of Charles Darwin when he was trying to figure out why uh, so many bad things could happen and God could still be good. Are you with me? And so these people were reasoning through that and they had not the understanding. And then it came to the Advent movement and it made crystal clear sense. And so I'm telling you, friends, People are not atheists because they think there's all this evidence that God doesn't exist. People are usually atheists because they've had negative experiences in their life, painful experiences, and they cannot answer the question why. And guess what? We as a movement of people have the answer. So we don't need to do all this crazy stuff. We just need to solidly, boldly, and lovingly proclaim our core message, and it answers their questions. Does that make sense? So, the children of Israel, again in Egypt, they lost the truth, God misrepresented, wrong concept of His character, and a rejection of God, and embracing that. Same thing happened again. Now, how about when Israel came out of Egypt? What did they do? The truth of God, of who He was, was restored where? And how was it restored? By giving them the Ten Commandments, correct? And he said, this is a declaration of who I am. If you want to know God, this is, this is me, right? And, and, you know, so many people view the Ten Commandments as a list of ten don'ts, but they're really a list of ten do's. When God says, don't commit adultery, what's He really saying? Be what? Be faithful. When God says, don't um, bear false witness, what's He really saying? Be truthful. Right? When he says, don't steal, he's really saying, be honest. Right, And so, really, it's a declaration of the qualities of God's character and that God wants to put in us. And so, his image was revealed to the Ten Commandments. But you notice, you remember what happens when, a short while later, that Satan twists and leads Israel into false worship by worshiping the golden calf. Correct? And they did that. But then what does God do? When Moses comes down, what does he do? He draws a what? A line line in the sand, and he says, whoever is on the Lord's side, do what? 
Come on this side, and whoever's not, stay over there. And who came over? The Levites, right? And so as a result of that, what did God do with the Levites? What did He put them in charge of? Huh? He put them in charge of the sanctuary, didn't He? He put them in charge of the sanctuary. He put them in charge of music because the people had had all this wrong music. And He said, these people are going to be in charge of the music in my temple because I want holy music. Amen? He put them in charge of a lot of things. But there was a remnant who was faithful, and it was the Levites, right? See that pattern there? Well, look at the time of the end. The truth began to be restored by God through the what? The Reformation. God's image was restored through the Great Awakening. Satan counterfeits that truth of God through false spiritual movements and revivals. But what does God, and I'm going to list those here in just a minute for you, but what does God do as a result? He draws out a what? A remnant. And who was His remnant? The Adventists. And those are the people that He puts in charge of the message of His heavenly sanctuary in the last days. Amen? How many can say amen? How many are thankful today to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Have you ever wondered... Am I in the right church? Is this the right church? You know, we have all these problems in the church. There hasn't been a time in the history of humanity when God's church didn't have some kind of problems. I mean, if you'd have looked at the 12 disciples before the cross, you'd have said, my goodness, that's the last church on earth I want to join, right? And even one of them betrayed, betrayed Jesus. People say, well, there's hypocrites in the church. Well, the reality is that if you leave the church knowing the truth because of hypocrites, then you're a greater hypocrite than them because you know the truth that they're not living. And if you know the truth and you don't live it, then the definition of you is a what? As a hypocrite. So Jesus told us that there would be hypocrites in the church, in the book of Revelation and other places. So when I see hypocrites in the church, I'm not encouraged by hypocrisy, but I'm encouraged that the Word of God told me ahead of time, and it's even more evidence that it's true. What are you saying? So God raises up a remnant at the end. So look at these movements. Look at this. I mean, this is mind-blowing. So God gave one of the greatest revelations of His existence in 1798, correct? What did He do in 1844? He repeated it again, didn't He? He repeated it after these false revivals began to take place. Now watch this. You have atheism in the 1790s, spiritualism, in 1844, Mormonism, you know, Joseph Smith died in 1844, but that was a big thing. Mormonism is a big, fat counterfeit of Adventism. That's all it is. They have a health message. They have a sanctuary message. They have a prophet. They have all the, many of the things similar to what we have. They are more dedicated in outreach than most Adventists are. And uh, it's, a, it's a big counterfeit. It's all it is. Darwinism, Darwin published his book, The Origin of the Species, in 1853, but he started writing it in 1844. Karl Marx met with, I forget, I always forget the gentleman's name, but he met with him in Paris in, in 1844 to discuss, what is it? I, yeah, I think so. In 1844, they met. The California Gold Rush was taking place in the 1840s. And then you have later on the Jehovah Witnesses in the 1870s, which the founder, Charles, no, it's something. I forget his name. Russell, that's it. Do you know that he used to be associated with Adventists? 
That's why, that's why they have the truth about the state of the dead and hell. He used to associate with Adventists, but he didn't like Ellen White, so he left, and he started his own thing, the Jehovah Witnesses. Now, you look at all these things, most of them in the 1840s, and I want you to notice this. You have an appeal to the intelligent, secular-minded person, reasonable thinking person. You have all kinds of people that are always attracted to the supernatural, people who are attracted to kind of religious fanaticism, people who are addicted to science, people who are addicted to power, people who are addicted to money. You basically have something for everyone, some kind of distraction for everybody. And Satan was seeking in the 1840s to draw people's minds away from a truth that was being preached that Christ was coming soon. And, the, and, then, and then afterwards, the understanding of the heavenly sanctuary, right? And many other truths, of course. But a question for you, do you suppose that all these things were happening by coincidence? Now, if you add Adventism to this, which one makes the absolute most sense. Are you with me? And so, I mean, friends, like, there's overwhelming evidence that this is the truth. What do you suppose? And Satan was seeking to, to draw away every personality from what God was really trying to do through prophecy. That's why, as a movement, we can never abandon our prophetic faith. We can never abandon our prophetic message. And you have all these people today saying, well, prophecy is not that big of a deal. Prophecy is a huge deal. It is a revelation of Jesus, and it, and it gives us confirmation of our identity and our purpose as a people. I mean, you look at Revelation chapter 10, the very rise of the Adventist movement is predicted in prophecy. The rise of, of the Methodist church isn't in prophecy. The Baptist church not in prophecy. I mean, you have two churches. I mean, look, like the Roman Catholic church is a prophetic movement. Did you know that? It's just not, it's just, it's a prophetic movement, but it's just not the right one. But understand this, in many ways, the Roman Catholic Church is fulfilling its prophetic destiny more so than God's own remnant church. They are. I mean, in fact, I think the Spirit of God is restraining them. Restraining them. Once again, similar to 79, the devil was attempting to divert the world's attention away from the truth that, the, that Bible prophecy was about to be fulfilled. As a result, most of these false movements have in some way crept into the Christian churches that have rejected the Bible since that time. And so, friends, the greatest message you can bear to the atheist is the prophetic message of the Adventist church. It shows the evidence, it answers the questions, and it reaches the heart. And I'm living proof of that, and many others as well, in the Adventist church. So how about... 1844 and after, and this is where we're winding down here. The end time truth is restored by God through the Advent movement, right? God's character is revealed in the last days 
not through tablets of stone, but through tablets of flesh, the heart, and your life. Amen? Because the reality is this. If you look at Psalm 19, it gives three revelations of the glory of God. Let's quickly, quickly look at that. I want to show you this. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. The first revelation of God's glory is, somebody said it earlier, through creation and through nature, right? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. But in these last days, the Bible says the earth will grow old as a garment. And people live in the cities and they don't see God's nature. And most people who do see the beauty of it worship nature itself rather than the God of nature, right? And so nature, even though it's still effective, is not the most effective, correct? Then the second revelation of God's glory is the law or His Word, right? Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And then it goes on and talks about it there. But more and more every year, the secular world is doing what with God's Word? They're rejecting it, right? But the third revelation of God's glory is verse 12 and on. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from what? Secret faults. Secret faults. And hold back your servant from presumptuous sins. Then I shall be blameless. And then verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. So God is going to reveal his glory in the last days through his what? His people, His Word living within His people. And the people of God will resist these false movements and deceptions in the end, and as a result, they will be sealed and prepared for the return of Christ. On the other hand, by the rest, the truth is rejected by the churches of Babylon. The truth is twisted by Satan in a massive counterfeit. The wisdom of men is accepted over the truth of God. And the final rejection of God takes place and probation closes. And so history is going to be repeated. Exactly what happened to Israel, exactly what happened to in the French Revolution, it's all going to be what? Repeated again with God's people in the last days. So don't miss this. Again, atheism is not something that surprised God. It's not something that God didn't plan for. The way he planned for it is by raising up his final movement. Amen? This is one of Satan's last thrusts through false religion, the Roman church, and secular atheism. He's striving to bring the world to the place where you know, they're all going to be surrendered to him. But God's answer to that is the Adventist church and the Adventist message. And if we preach this message, we don't have to come up with any other thing. We don't have to be worried that what we're going to say is not good enough. We don't have to come up with coffee shop evangelism and, and rock music to draw people. Because I'm telling you, the world's going to do it a whole lot better than we are at our best attempt. You know, it's sad to say, but that may not always be true. Like some of our people do it better than the people in the world. Um, that's a shameful thing to say, but it's true. But it's our message that's going to reach the world. Amen? Isaiah 31, verse 1 to 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt. Again, Egypt is always a symbol of human reason and rejection of God for help and rely upon horses who trust in chariots because they are many 
and horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he is also wise and will bring disaster, will not call back his words, but will rise against the house of evildoers and against those, the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians, human reasoning, remember, are men and not who? God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall and he who is helped will fall down. They will all perish together. The Word of God has endured every movement against it, including atheism. And it's going to outlast everything (laughs) that's thrown against it. Amen? And it's not enough to believe the Word of God, but you must have it living in you. And let me tell you what, friends, in these last days with, with the atheistic mindset, it's not just telling them about the Word of God. It's going to be the Word of God living in you that's going to draw their hearts to the Savior. And it's going to be through your life that God does it. Amen? Amen. Please do not be ashamed of our prophetic message because it is the message of life to the world today. Amen? Amen. It is the answer to the heart's cry of the atheist, of the agnostic, of the Buddhist, of the Hindu, of the Muslim. And we ought not to be shamed because we have what the rest of the world is looking for and doesn't know it. How many of you are thankful today to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Amen? Amen. Let's have prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this prophetic movement. It was the answer. It is the answer to modern atheism. And God, you have proven over and over again that your truth and your message is sure. And no matter what the belief system, Lord, it gives the answers to the deep questions of life that people are seeking to find answers for. So please, Lord, put the words in our mouths and help us to be witnesses of this message, both in word and deed, in life and practice, so that others would be drawn to you and your truth would shine forth in your church and without of your church into the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.